0: To him, where steady arms of mercy reach to gather children in, rejoice. joy is morning sun and those weeping through the night come those who tell of battles won and those struggling in the fight for his perfect love will never change and his mercies never cease but follow us through of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, let every tongue rejoice. One heart, one voice, O Church of Christ, rejoice. Of his grace over all the world, his people sing, shore to shore, we hear them call the truth that cries through every age. Our God is all in all. Rejoice, rejoice. Of Christ, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Let every tongue rejoice. One heart, one voice, O Church of
1: Everybody will join me in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. Thank you Pastor Jeff for filling in today for Brother Aaron as he is away on vacation. Brother Matt was talking about how low the humidity was today. I noticed his hair didn't have any wave in it today, so it really did make his hair look much straighter today, so no problems there at all. We will be meeting 4 o'clock on Tuesday and Wednesday for those that will be helping with the meal for our police officers in the local precinct. So you could be here, we'll get everything ready and then take that to them at about 5 o'clock. And so the gift baskets, you can put anything else you'd like to in there for the rest of the day. And then we will be done with those at the end of the day today. So I just want to make mention of that. All right, we come to Matthew chapter 5. Over the last several weeks, we have been looking at those things that Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry said. So, statements that Jesus made that in the day in which he made them, and even now, thousands of years later, we look back at those statements and they can cause some confusion for us. Last week, we looked at how, in one place, the Lord says essentially you have to hate your father and mother and your wife and your children and your brothers and sisters, and then he tells us to love our enemies. And so, we looked at what does that really mean there in Scripture and in the context, what was the position. ...that Christ was trying to explain. So when we come now to Matthew chapter 5... ...we are coming to what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most famous sermon ever preached... ...and as we look at it... ...it's amazing what Jesus is able to cover in a short time... ...and how we as pastors for centuries since... ...have spent weeks and weeks expounding what he said in about 15 minutes or so. But when you consider the Sermon on the Mount... It begins with the Beatitudes. And when we look at those, we recognize that the Lord has called us to a different level. As the passage in the sermon continues, there are a few more points that the Lord is trying to communicate to the group that is there listening and then in turn to us today. When Jesus is speaking, he comes after the first few verses there with the Beatitudes. He comes to the passage where he says, look, ye are the light of the world. And we have a responsibility as light to shine. You don't take light, hide it under a candlestick or under a bushel. And so we have this responsibility to shine properly and to let the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ be seen around the world in us. Then he specifically begins to talk now to a group that is a religious group of people. This is a group of people that in hearing the Beatitudes, in hearing this illustration of being the light of the world, have now come to a place to where he has to compare them to another group to get their position. So we're Matthew chapter 5, join me in verse 20. If you leave verse 20 out, you can miss the whole point of the, the rest of the chapter, really. Verse 20, for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So there's a mindset of the people there, that I can go to heaven, and they have an understanding of what will get them to heaven. They have in their mind that if I keep the commandments, if I do enough good, then I can get to heaven. This has not changed this was true then it is equally true in our day today that there are people who genuinely believe if i do more good than i do bad and my good outweighs my bad then i will be able to go to heaven but if my bad outweighs my good then i'll have to go to hell and the lord makes a point here he said look if your righteousness is going to get you to heaven You're going to have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, we know from church history what their definition of righteousness was. It took the commandments to an extreme. So there weren't the Ten Commandments. There were additional law commandments given there to the nation. Some of those were religious and ceremonial. Some of them were for moral living. And so they had these commandments and they took them to an extreme. So much so that on Sunday or Sabbath day for them, on Saturday, you could only take so many steps. So you had to count how many steps you took. And even to this day, there would be those that would have an Orthodox Jewish background that would look at this and have similar type commandments in their life that they use for righteousness. So that you can have electricity in your house, you just can't turn the light switch on on Sunday. So you have to leave your lights on So that the lights will be on ahead of time because you can't turn the switch on. You can use running water, you just can't use hot water. And and so there's these types of of things out there that they hold as a standard. This was true in Jesus' day. So Jesus says, look, if you think that your righteousness is enough to get you to heaven, your righteousness, your goodness is going to have to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Then he goes on to illustrate this. There are six illustrations that are used over the rest of the chapter. And we are going to look at these six illustrations very quickly, but we're going to look at them to answer three specific questions. And this was kind of the crux of what the Lord was trying to teach here. The three questions we're going to try and answer are, how do we see ourselves in light of what God's teaching? How do we see ourselves? How do we see God and who God is and what God's role in our life is and what God expects of us? And then how do we see others? So as we go through these six illustrations, those are the three questions we are looking to answer from these. You want to go to heaven, you're going to have to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. Well, even today we look at that and we go, but Jesus, my own righteousness can't get me to heaven. And that is the point he's trying to make. But in that day, as there are in this day, there are those who believe that their righteousness is enough to get them to heaven. That they can be good enough. So the Lord takes the standard. Here's the scribes and Pharisees. Now, let's see what that righteousness above them really means. All right, so you're with me here in Matthew 5. Join me in verse 22. But I say unto you, That whosoever is angry with his brother. Now, forgive me, I skipped. Let's go back to verse 21. Let's get this phrase here because we're going to need it today. Ye have heard that it was said. All right, so that phrase right there makes up our six illustrations. There's going to be each one of these. Ye have heard that it was said. (laughs) Think of all the things you have heard that it was said. There are things that you genuinely believe because somebody told you it. And you believe it. The other day we were sitting at the dinner table. And randomly, Mariah asked the question, what's the biggest river? Well, okay. So all of us have answers in our mind that have popped into our mind already about what the biggest river is. So, go ahead. Tell me what the biggest river is. Yeah, see? Everybody got the same one. No. Somebody said the Amazon. Somebody said the Nile. And did I get anything else? Mariah's guess was the Mississippi. Now, The answer to the question is the Mississippi is the longest in the U.S. The Nile is historically known as the longest in the world. Some guy just did a 14-day exploration of the Amazon and found a new stretch of the Amazon. And and so supposedly now the Amazon is longer than the Nile, but that's not like a genuinely accepted fact. So there's your answer in case you're wondering. Well, trying to be the all-knowing father that I am, I look at her I said, well... It's kind of a trick question because it depends on your answer. And so I answered the question based off of something I had been told in school. I don't know which teacher told me this, but I grew up in Florida. So there is a Florida bias now attached to this answer. And I had a teacher tell me in school at some point along the way that the Everglades, because of the way the water moves in the Everglades, is technically considered a river. And because of the vastness of the size of it, that it is by volume actually the largest river in the world. Now, I can't blame the teacher because I don't know who it was, but I was clearly taught that and I clearly remember that from school. So, I said it to my kids. And then I Googled it. And I found out I was wrong. But it had been said, and I was sure of it. And I was absolutely wrong. There are things in our lives that it's been said. You've heard that it was said. And you have accepted as truth because you have heard from the right source that it was said. There is a statement that is simple. If the right people say the wrong thing long enough and loud enough, sooner or later people believe it. I had a group of teenage boys in a cabin one time when I was a cabin counselor years ago, and somebody had seen a snake outside, and so I couldn't help myself. I said, oh yeah, we have snakes all over the place here. Well, are they poisonous? Well, yeah, they're poisonous. I mean, we, we don't have the little ones that aren't. All the ones around here are, are rattlesnakes, copperheads. I mean, everything around here is poisonous snake. Oh, really? I said, yeah. I said, and, and they can get in the cabins, but it doesn't happen all that often. And so then somebody else came, well, I, I saw one coming in our cabin earlier. I said, well, that's it's possible. That does happen. And really, really well, what, what, how do you get rid of them? I said, honestly, they're kind of hard to find. Because a lot of times they'll get into people's clothes, and they'll get in their duffel bags, and then we can't find them. And so sooner or later, somebody will find them, and we just hope they don't get bit when they find it, and, and that we, we catch the snake before somebody gets bit. But it, it have, look, we keep antivenom down at the clinic. Generally, they recover within a week or two. So it's not a big deal. I mean, we're not really worried about it. I'm telling you, I had this group of rough, tough teenage boys who wouldn't come in the cabin. They're going up with bats to their bag, and they're poking their bag, and like trying to pull clothes out of their bag to make sure there are not snakes in there. And these boys, for hours, were scared. to. They wouldn't use the bathroom in the cabin because they were afraid a snake was in the toilet. I mean, they, they were just scared to death because the right person had told them the wrong thing. They believed it. But the Lord said, look, you've heard that it was said. Now, you've heard it through rabbis. You've heard it through tradition of the rabbinical authority. So there is some Old Testament biblical authority to these statements. But because it was said by someone in a position of, does not necessarily make it true. So we got to deal with that and we got to help you understand this. Now, the first couple of things that the Lord speaks of here are what I call universal moral imperatives. Now, we like to think that even the world as a whole is falling further and further away from truth. And and truth becomes more and more relative, the more and more advanced society seems to get. And in this relative nature of truth, there are still certain moral imperatives that if you looked as a whole around the world, most people still would say, yeah, I recognize that as right and wrong. The first one is the most obvious of those. So we come back to verse 21. He says, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. So moral imperative one, murder. Look, you should not murder. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, is the word murder there. So it's the idea of a premeditative act or a physical harm act not associated with self-defense or war. So look, you should not be involved in murder. You've heard this. It was taught. If you are, then you will be in danger of judgment. That judgment there has to do with the local authorities. In the Old Testament law, the Lord taught that you're not to kill. It's coming after the image of God. If you do, there is capital punishment for those that are murderers. And so this all was laid out. These individuals knew it. So those that were in the Pharisaical mindset looked at this and said, Thou shalt not kill. I don't kill, therefore I am righteous. So most people today would still readily accept that murdering someone is wrong. And so I don't murder people, therefore good, outweighing the bad. And I'm a good, righteous person because I don't murder. And so the Lord raises the standard on this. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause... ...shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka... ...shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool... ...shall be in danger of hellfire. So there's a progression here. The Lord says, you're saying that the action of killing someone... ...is a crime. And if you don't do that, then you're righteous. But let me give you a little bit higher standard here. If in your heart you get angry with someone and you develop a hatred towards them, then that's the same as murder. If you say to them, raka, raka is the idea of looking at someone in disgust and and calling them, the the word there could be translated moron, idiot. Um, It's the idea of a sound that would have to do with the clearing of your throat. And so it's almost like you're not worth spitting on. Um, So it's a disgust toward someone because of what they have done or who they are And so when you look at them and you're saying, Raka, it's the idea of, you're a moron. You're just, you're worthless to me. And there's an anger towards that person that makes them of absolutely no value. And then to go beyond, to the idea of fool. It's saying, you fool, there's a hatred there and a degradation of that person to such a level that you see no value in them at all. So it's... I'm angry with them. Then there begins to be this bitterness and hatred. And then there's just this loathing of an individual. And he says, you're in danger of judgment. Now, the word here is the word Gehenna. It has to do with the Valley of Hinoam. It's where they would go on the outskirts of Jerusalem and they would burn trash. And they would take all the trash. It was a city dump. And they would burn the trash. Aren't you glad you didn't live there? And it was kind of a constant fire because they had to keep burning trash And so it was seen as a garbage heap of burning fire, of brimstone. And so the idea here is the Lord saying, look, if you're saying that murder is what makes you guilty and not murder makes you righteous, if you have angst and anger in your heart, you have hatred, you have a disdain, you're worthy of condemnation equally you're worthy of the capital punishment that is due to a murderer you're guilty and you deserve hell so you're looking at it and you're saying to me i'm righteous because i don't kill i'm looking at you and saying you're not righteous because you get angry and then we have to step back and we have to honestly say well who among us hasn't gotten angry And it becomes all-encompassing. Every single one of you has gotten angry. Every single one of you has had murder in their heart because of their anger. And as a result of that, you're guilty and you deserve judgment. In that, the Lord's not saying, I'm going to judge you. He's saying, that's where your righteousness must excel to. If you're going to be more righteous than the scribes, you've got to be an individual who never gets angry. That's a tough sell, isn't it? If you're going to go to heaven, not killing people is not good enough to tip the scales. Never getting angry gets us moving in the right direction. So, well, I've gotten angry. Sorry, you're out. Continue on. So he goes, and to, to look at this and to see the value, the Lord kind of gives an example of what to do. He says, therefore, if I bring thy gift to the altar, and thou rememberest that thou, brother, hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go and be reconciled with thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. And if there's a problem, I don't even want your religious sacrifice, because you cannot be right with me as long as there's a problem with your brother. Go get this fixed. Then, he, he continues on. The second illustration here has to do with the idea of adultery. The seventh commandment is that of adultery. Ye have heard, verse 27, that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Again, somewhat of a universal imperative. Most people would believe that if you're married, you should not be involved in immoral activity with someone else or at any other level and that's a fairly universal even in the wickedness of our society where people try to justify and make it okay for the most part people still say if you've committed to one person you really shouldn't be doing these types of things and the lord says your mind adultery i've never committed adultery Therefore, I'm righteous. It says, no, 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 no. Because I'm raising the standard. If you have ever lusted, you've ever looked after someone, male or female, you have looked after them with a desire for immorality at any level, you've committed adultery. So that now you're trying to say that in your life, you're righteous. He's saying, oh, no, 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 no. There's a new standard of righteousness. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman, verse 28, to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And look at the serious nature of this. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body shall be cast into hell if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish. And not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So the series, we can try to, to make this, oh well, I, there's an extreme serious nature here. You are better off to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand than you are to go to hell. The gravity of this is such that look, you're saying. That it's okay to just not commit the act. And I'm telling you that the thought and the look of the eye is enough to make you want to pull your eye out of your head. Wow, that's a little harsh, Lord. Because you cannot obtain righteousness in yourself. And then he goes on. He now begins to deal with some of those areas of life that are not as morally imperative, but are very common practices in that day. It hath been said, so again, you've been taught, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. So the idea in that day is look, you get tired of your wife, you just write out a little paper, sign it, give it to the city, and it's done. She just goes away. It is not like we think of it today. So this involves several things. It involves taking away her her livelihood and basically sending her back to her family and saying, okay, you got to go live with them. I'm not going to take care of you anymore. It didn't have any strings attached as far as this is now my responsibility over her, over the children. It's just go. Just I'm done with you. I'm just tired of you. I says, look, you've heard that you could do this for any reason. And then they try to refer to Moses. He says, look, this is elsewhere in scripture, but he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart. So in your mind, it's okay to take a commitment that you have made to marriage and to just throw it away. And he says, oh, no, don't do that. And he goes on. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, save for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. And, and please understand, we're not going to go deep into the divorce issue here this morning. But, but it's just a matter of just cast her away. You, you just want to be done with her, just get rid of her. That's okay. And so there was a righteousness that the men that Jesus is speaking to specifically here feel that they because they can just do whatever they want to with women. And they can treat them however they want. And as long as they sign the paper, it's okay to treat them poorly. What's going, no, 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 no. You've got to raise that standard. You can't just, you made a commitment to her. You can't just cast her off. Continuing on. Go down to verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said of them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor of the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more of these is evil. Step back. People would make commitments, and it was as if it was okay to lie, except for when they made an oath. So they had these different ways that they swear. We still do this when you're a little kid, pinky swear, you know, and you put, you put your pinky out there, and so then, well, you got to do it. As adults, we'll say, well, let me, you know, I'm, I'm just telling you the truth here. Well, you weren't telling me the truth before? But we have to clarify, when you go to buy anything of substantial value, there's paperwork, and there's signing, and there's notaries, and there's witnesses, and there's all of this convoluted contract stuff now. Why? Because people's word doesn't have value. They had the same system. Well, if you swore a certain way... So if you put your hand over here... Or on a Bible... Or by your mother's grave... Or your hand on your head... or And, and they had all of these little things... And if you did that... When you made an oath... Then you had to keep it. But if I had my fingers crossed... I'm out. And, and, and literally... We look at it and kind of go, that's just silly. That's the way they behaved. I said it, therefore, I didn't do the oath so I don't have to follow through. It's okay. I didn't promise. The Lord says, you think you're righteous because when you go through this formality of this fancy oath, you keep that. I'm telling you, righteousness is when you say something and you do it. And when you say you're not going to and you don't this morning. Eden came to me first thing this morning, and she, Daddy, can you put, and we just don't happen to have any band-aids in the house right now, you know, We so I have some little, like, medical tape. She goes, can you put some tape on my finger? I got an ouchie. And you're like, sure, you know, I, I don't see this on there. She's already got one on her thumb from an ouchie there, and so she's wanting a piece of tape on her finger. Well, time passes, we're getting ready to leave. Well, this has now gotten complicated at a level. You go, it's just a piece of tape on her finger. I know, but. She's coming to church, and Mama doesn't want her coming to church with tape all over her hands. Okay? So Mama's already taken the tape off of her thumb because she doesn't want her to look like she's got stuff all over her when she comes to church. So we're getting ready to get in the truck, and I told her, and, and the tape's right by the back door. I said, look, I'll get you some when we're heading to church. So now it's, Mama's already told her she can't have tape. Daddy told her I would put tape on there. So what now do I do? Well, Kara was upstairs. I didn't have time to run back up and have a conversation about this. So I found clear tape. And I put clear tape on her finger. Because I had told her I would do it. I didn't swear. I didn't make an oath. But I said I would. And now I have a responsibility to my three-year-old who doesn't understand to do what I said I would do. The Lord says, if you want to be righteous, don't forget this swearing silliness. When you say you'll do something, do it. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Hold to your word and have value in what you say. No one should ever doubt what you say is true. So when you tell somebody about the Everglades, go Google it to make sure you're telling them the truth. Verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, just being clear Was this an accurate Bible teaching? Yes. This was absolutely true to the law that was given to the nation by God. That when someone stole from you, they had to repay and they had to repay fourfold. When there was a situation in which there was harm done, harm could be given back to the individual. And so the eye for the eye, tooth for a tooth, that type of mindset stood and they thought, As long as if somebody knocks out my tooth, I only knock out one of their teeth in exchange, I'm righteous. The Lord says, No, that's not righteous. He said, Now you got to go beyond that. Now you got to stop seeking revenge. Now you got to stop looking at that individual when they do something to you, and you have to completely forgive that individual. So revenge is no longer a standard of righteousness. Now righteousness is being set as a standard of it's okay to be taken advantage of. You don't have to go and get that back that you feel like was. So if somebody takes your coat, let them have your cloak also. If somebody hits you on one cheek, let them have the other cheek. Your righteousness you thought was high enough, it's way down here. And then finally he says, love your enemies. Don't, don't hate. This is in verse 43. Ye have heard that it been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which would despitefully use you and persecute you. You are to now not hate. Don't we feel like there are groups of people that it's okay for us to not like? And our dislike for people can grow based on what they have done against us as individuals or against us as a collective nation. There can be a lot of animosity that grows. Man, our country right now is hurting in so many ways because of hate. And the Lord says, you think it's okay for those people who are against you, for you to hate them. And as long as you love the people who are nice to you, then you think you're righteous. You see, the first question we asked was How do we see ourselves? Don't we love to see ourselves as basically good? I, I, I'm basically a good person. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have some struggles along the way, but essentially, I'm good. And even the world today essentially thinks that they're good. And the more and more truth becomes relative, the better and better I get. So people think they're good. And what the Lord's trying to teach in all of this is you see yourself as good. You're not good. You're not righteous. Essentially, what you are is an individual who struggles as a murderer, an adulterer, You have problems in your heart with your relationship with your spouse. You have problems in the way that you keep your word. You have so many problems. You seek revenge when somebody does you wrong. You have hatred towards your enemies. And you think you're righteous? Now, we may not hit all six of them here this morning. But we definitely hit some of these. This guy changed the way we see ourselves. The world will get on some of the old songwriters who would sing words such as a wretch like me. Well, you should love yourself. My problem ain't that I love myself too little. My problem is I love myself too much. Look, we're not righteous. And then the question comes, well, how does this affect how we see God? How does this affect my view of God now? When it comes to God, the example in life that trains us so much of the way we think about God is the home. It's why the home is so important. It's why the dad's role in the home is so important. It's not a perfect picture. Not by any stretch. But but it starts a picture. And the flaw in the picture is so greatly revealed because mom and dad can't see what's going on inside. Now, when they're little, kids tend to not be able to hide things well. And, and so you kind of know what's going on inside. I mean, it's, the attitude is all over their face. And, and it's easy to recognize that I may have their behavior, they may be doing the action, but I don't have their heart right here. And, and behavior's easy compared to heart. We grow up that way, and if as parents we don't get active about that heart, then we grow into Christians who are worried about action ...and not thoughts. And we go through and we go, well, I don't murder some. I'm okay. Because we're taught early on, actions have consequences. If I murder someone, I'm going to go before the judge. I'm going to have to stand before the civil authorities. My actions have consequences. I speed, I'm going to get a ticket. If I get caught lying, I'm going to be in trouble. So we're taught that and we behave that way. And we bring that view into our Christianity... And we come before God, and that's exactly what they were doing here. They go, well, I don't murder, I don't commit adultery, I haven't done these things, therefore my actions are good enough. And God is not dependent upon looking at our actions to know what's going on. You see, our actions, as the Lord is teaching here, stem and they begin to come from our thoughts. So you're saying murder is bad. I'm telling you anger is the thing that leads to hatred that leads towards murder. And so it is this thought process that's going to get you in trouble. And so the Lord is now looking at it and he has raised the standard. And he's saying you think that it is just your actions that have consequences. I'm telling you your thoughts have consequences Thoughts are as important as action. When you go through your life and you are breaking the thoughts that you should have that glorify God, there are now a standard that the Lord has set that there are consequences for that. That's why Paul said, look, we are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I have to put my mind in jail and deal with the thoughts of my mind. Because what I've got is I've now got a struggle that I see myself no longer in some form of false self-righteousness. Because I now know that God sees so much deeper into me. And God sees what's going on inside of me. And now my view of God has to change. For the nation of Israel, they lived in a ticket society. Now, when I say that, I mean a fair ticket society. You go to the fair... You pay your $20, you get your 20 tickets, and you can go ride two rides. You know, you, you put out your tickets for the two rides and, and you go ride your rides or whatever it is. But as long as I have tickets, I can keep riding the rides. Sometimes this is true in school. If you're in a school situation that has demerits, you know, and until I get so many demerits, then they're just free. I can just do things wrong and it's okay. I've still got demerits to spend until I really get in any kind of trouble. And so, Their society was, well, I can do wrong, I just got to go offer a sheep. I I can do wrong, I just got to go give a meal offering. I can do wrong, and I can just go offer a turtle dove. And as long as the wrong was worth the sacrifice, I'll go do it. We do the same thing. We just don't make sacrifice. Well, I can confess this later. As long as the consequences aren't too great, I'll just do this. I'm not going to get caught so. And the Lord says... What you don't understand is I see it all, I know it all, and that there is guilt in the things that are in your head, let alone the things that you're acting on. So you need to guard your thoughts. And we see God in a different light now, because I'm not righteous, God is righteous, And so the only way to Him is through Christ. And the the redemptive work of Christ does not diminish in value at this moment, it skyrockets in value. Because now Christ's blood doesn't just have to cover the actions that I did, it covers the thoughts that I had. And to know the wickedness of my heart and to know the forgiveness of God through the blood of Christ. So humbling. It changes the way I see God. But it also changes the way I see others. Notice this is a a big concept. And we don't have a lot of time for it. But think through it for just a second. So much of Bible truth revolves around a concept of unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. There is a unified nature. We are image bearers of God. We are to be like him. It is a good thing when the brethren, those that believe in Christ, dwell together in unity. We are constantly called to unity in our marriages, to unity in our churches, to unity as a nation, to unity as believers. Because deity is unity. As believers, we are to be unified. We are to have that same unifying nature and attributes. So when you come as a Christian and you murder, you break unity. When you come as a Christian, you commit adultery, you break unity. Divorce, you break unity. Lying, unity. Revenge, you break unity. When you come through each one of these steps, unity is broken. And so the Lord says, how can you love me, who you have not seen, when you hate your brother, who you have seen? You've got an offense, don't come to me. Go get it right with him. Reestablish that unity so that you can now come to me. Husband and wife. If you guys aren't right. Your prayers are going to be hindered. So that there is a unifying factor. That we as believers. See in our very nature. Being image bearers. And every person I come in contact with. Is an image bearer. And therefore I have a responsibility. To try and bring them into unity. Relationally. And spiritually with Christ. So I can't hate my enemy I can't bring them into a relationship with Christ I I can't build that unity I can't get rid of my wife and have unity with my wife and and all of these steps come together so that when I see people I have to look at them differently I no longer look at people as problems as obstacles I look at people as Opportunities for God's glory instead of obstacles to my joy. You, you have a fight and your joy's gone. Now that person's the problem of the loss of your joy. Instead, what they are is the opportunity for your forgiveness. Now, trace this back just a little bit. You're no good. You, who are you? How do you see yourself? I'm no longer righteous. I'm no good. God is so good. That he can't even accept the wickedness of my thoughts. But because of Christ he can still forgive them. I can't possibly understand the wickedness of other people's thoughts. I can only judge them on their actions. He forgives me for both my thoughts and my actions. So why can't I forgive them? So the progress here is. If you're going to be righteous, enough to get to heaven, all of these things have to take place. Well, you can't do all of those things. You, You can't be perfect. So because it's not there, you then grow in the grace in these areas through the blood of Jesus Christ so that you begin to see others in a way that when I look at them, they are opportunities for me to bring glory to God and helping either bring them to Christ or in helping show grace towards them. It's easy to talk about It's hard to live out. So these individuals hearing Jesus, and they have to process this saying. And they go, Lord, I I, I don't know what to do with it. I can't not get angry. I can't live this way perfectly. Because I know. But I've forgiven you, and I want to help you live that way. So for you and I, as I, I look at the whole gambit of this, I'm humbled by the mercy that God has given. I know who I am, and yet I still think I'm basically good. I overvalue myself, I undervalue God, and I undervalue others. The Lord says, it's time to change the scale. Value others, value me, undervalue yourself. You're probably somewhere in that similar paradigm. And this morning, we have to search our hearts to say, okay, God, I've not been giving proper value to others. I haven't been giving proper value to what you've done for me. And it should drive us to a humble place in our hearts in which we say, Lord, thank you. Let's pray. Father.